As we meet right now, we get to gather around the very words of the one true and living God. What a privilege. It it may seem strange. We, We sit here, we sing a couple songs with one guitar, we pray, we read a book, we listen to somebody talk, and yet there is nowhere that I would rather be than to gather together with God's people around God's word. And so as we do this, would you join me in praying and in asking that he would speak through that word tonight? Father, would you be true to your word Uh, in Psalm 119? Would you help us to love your law? Would you help us to meditate on your law all day? Would you help your commandments to make us wiser than our enemies, for it is always with us? Would you give us understanding? Would you help your testimonies to be our meditation? Would you help us to keep your precepts, to hold back our feet from every evil way in order to keep your word? Would you help us to not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught us? How sweet are your words to our taste, sweeter than honey to our mouth. Through your precepts we get understanding, therefore we hate every false way. Lord, would you make those things true in our hearts and minds tonight? as we hear your words. In the name of your Son, Christ, the living word we pray. Amen. Tonight we're going to... Can you guys hear me? Has everything been resolved? All right. Tonight we're going to continue a series where we're looking at the life of Hezekiah. We began this a couple weeks ago. As we come tonight to 2 Kings 18, let's remember where we are in the history of the Old Testament. Hezekiah is the 13th king of Judah after Israel was divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The main superpower on the scene these days is the nation of Assyria. Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, had paid Assyria to save Judah from some other enemies and had submitted Judah to the service of this foreign power. In the opening verses of 2 Kings 18, we learned that Hezekiah did not continue this practice, but he rebelled against the king of Assyria, and he would not serve him. In the meantime, Assyria continued their conquest, and they destroyed the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. That brings us to our passage tonight. So if you would open your word I'm going to read 2 Kings starting 18, starting in verse 13 through the end. In the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria set the tartan, the Rabsaris, and the Rabshakeh, 
with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem, and when they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household of Shebna, the secret- and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Moreover, is, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? Then the Rebshekah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. And each one of you will eat of his own vine and each one of his own fig tree and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered this land out of the hands of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim, Hena and Eva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But the people were silent. And answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. It's a long passage. My plan tonight is to walk through this narrative quickly We have an understanding of what is going on, and then I want us to consider three principles that can be drawn out. 
of this event. First, let's just make sure we understand what is going on. As we mentioned, when Hezekiah became king, he had stopped paying tribute to the king of Assyria. Now we jump into the story 14 years later. The king of Assyria has come calling. He has defeated the fortified cities of Judah. We saw last week, or two weeks ago, the lasting legacy of Hezekiah is one who trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. But in the face of this threat, it didn't take long for him to change course. Offers to pay whatever Sennacherib would impose on Judah to once again be a subject of Assyria. In order to pay the required amount, Hezekiah uses the treasures of the temple of God. Verse 7 of chapter 13 tells us that Hezekiah had rebelled against the king of Assyria, but now we see that he repents to the king of Assyria, and in the process he rebels against God. For whatever reason, this settlement isn't sufficient in the eyes of Sennacherib, so he sends his armies to Jerusalem. In the Assyrian records, it is recounted this way, Hezekiah is shut up in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. This is what the armies are doing. They're, they're coming, surrounding the king of Judah, and caging him inside of his own city. As the army gathers outside of Jerusalem, they bring a message for the king and for the people of Judah. The message is delivered by three emissaries of the king of Assyria, and it's received by three uh, representatives of the king of Judah. When they call for the king, he doesn't come out. He sends uh, three of his representatives. And the, the Rabshakeh, military leader in Assyria, is the one that is going to do the speaking. And first he addresses Hezekiah. The, the theme of his address to the king of Judah uh, is, is clearly one of trust. The word trust appears six times. And this question is asked rhetorically, on what do you rest your trust? In whom do you now trust? With the implied answer, you have no where to turn. In verse 21, he's explicit. You can't trust Egypt. It's unclear whether seeking help from Egypt was an option that Hezekiah had actually pursued or simply one that would be naturally considered, but either way it is dismissed as a possibility. In verse 22, it's clear you, it says you, you can't trust God. And here, Sennacherib shows an impressive knowledge of what's happening inside Judah, although not as much of an accurate knowledge of theology. He argues in verse 22 that God will not be on their side because Hezekiah has torn down the high places either doesn't know or doesn't care this was an act of obedience rather than disobedience. In verses 23 and 24, he argues you can't trust in yourself. And here the Assyrians are openly mocking the people of Judah. We'll give you horses, but you can't even provide people to sit on them. How do you possibly expect to defeat even the most insignificant of our forces? Egypt can't save you, your God won't save you, you can't save yourselves. And then he goes a step further and he claims special revelation from God directing him to destroy the people of Judah. The message is clear, you have no hope, your defeat is inevitable, 
you have no trust to turn to. It's a believable message. Uh, It's so believable that the representatives of the king, Hezekiah, ask that they might kindly communicate in a different language so as not to discourage the people who are overhearing. Uh, The Rabshakeh refuses and instead turns his attention to speaking directly to the people. Having established the desperate state in which Judah now finds themselves, the message turns to the need for deliverance. He undermines confidence in the king by blatantly stating that the king, Hezekiah, will not be able to deliver you and his God will not be able to deliver you. And this might seem a little bit strange. It did to me. Uh, when, when Hezekiah did not seem to place his trust in God to deliver the people in the first place. However, uh, remember that the summary of his life is that he is one who has trusted in the God of Israel. And it appears he has remembered his God and has turned back to him. This story is recounted in 2 Chronicles 32, and here we get a little bit more of a glimpse of Hezekiah's preparations as Assyria approaches. He does a number of things. He he makes it harder for the Assyrians to find water. He reinforces the walls of the city, makes weapons in abundance. But he also rallies the people, and he rallies them with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. We are told that the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So despite his acquiescence to the Assyrians initially, it appears that Hezekiah has returned to his trust and has called the people to do the same. Just as, a, as, a, as an aside, uh, it's, isn't it encouraging that even one who trusted in the Lord in a manner that set him apart from all who would come before him, from all who would come after him, sometimes fear gets the best of him, and yet when it does, he repents and he turns back to his trust. So the king of Assyria says, don't listen to what your king is saying. Don't listen to his talk about this God who will deliver you. Listen instead to me. And then Sennacherib makes an... Sennacherib? I always want to put an extra... All week I've wanted to put an extra N in there somewhere. but Uh, He makes an offer. He says, I will deliver you. Make peace with me and you will live. Sounds like a good offer. And not only will you live, but you will live comfortably, each with your own vine and fig tree and cistern, until I take you to a land of bread and wine and olive trees and honey. This sure sounds better than the graphic picture painted so vividly in verse 27 of what they will eat and drink if they don't look to Assyria for deliverance. What's interesting here about this enticement by the king of Assyria is it is a mimicking of what God has already promised to his people. In Deuteronomy 6, God promises a land flowing with milk and honey where the people will have houses full of good things 
cisterns, vines, and olive trees where they will eat and be full. In Deuteronomy 8, this land is described as a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey. Reminds me of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness where Satan is offering him all the kingdoms of the world, kingdoms that already belong to the sovereign reigning God. Assyria is promising to give God's people, if they will turn from God and subject themselves to this foreign nation, what God has already promised, give them. The entire message to the people is designed to scare and to entice them into a rebellion against their king, into a rebellion against their God, into a willingness to subject themselves to the king of Assyria, to trade their trust in God for their trust in Assyria and in their Assyria's king. The final word to the people in um, verses 33 through 35 is a historical interpretation. In all the history of Assyria, there is no nation whose gods have delivered them from us, is what the king says, and your God, no different. The words of Rabshakeh, of the Rabshakeh, delivered on behalf of the king of Assyria, we can see clearly they're an attempt to psychologically demoralize to sow doubt in their king and in their God, to threaten inevitable destruction, to promise ease and comfort if the people will just give in, make it easy on themselves, make it easy on the Assyrians, and make peace with each other. And before we move on, I want you to notice how often the words of this message are actually true words. The Egyptians were not going to be able to save the people of Judah. Hezekiah had removed the high places. Judah didn't have enough men to be a serious threat to the Assyrian army. None of the gods of the other nations had been able to stand up to the Assyrians. Yet one thing we'll notice is that even with all of these true statements piled on top of each other, they come to false conclusions in the Assyrian camp. They, they interpret wrongly what they see in front of them. The Israelites, thankfully, in response to the speech of the Rabshakeh, they're faced with a choice. They're faced with a choice to either trust God and die, trust the Assyrians and live. Thankfully, they choose to trust God. They choose to side with their king who has told them, don't answer. They don't answer. They honor the king and they side with him. They side with his God. So this message is brought to the king and the people do not answer. So that's the story. Assyria threatens Judah. Judah tries to bribe to get out of the situation. Assyria comes anyway with an army, with a message that mocks and demoralizes the king and the people of Judah. This time, the king is back to trusting God, and the people follow him. In light of that story, I want us to consider three principles about ourselves and God and the world 
that we see in this story. First, I want us to see that conflict is inevitable. In the verses immediately preceding our text, we see that disobedience to God is dangerous. It is the northern kingdom's disobedience to God that ultimately leads to their destruction. However, we see here that obedience is also dangerous. Godliness provokes the world. Between the godly and the world, there will always be conflict. God made this clear in the curses of Genesis 3 when he tells the woman that he will put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There will be an ongoing battle between the followers of God and the enemies of God. Cannot escape it. This plays out throughout the narrative of Scripture. It plays out throughout the narrative of church history. It's the same thing that Paul writes to Timothy as he seeks to encourage him in his labors, plainly stating all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The conflict is not always immediate. Hezekiah and Judah had lived peacefully for 14 years since Hezekiah had rebelled against the Assyrians, but now the animosity has come to the surface. Striking how relevant this experience is to our day. For many years, Christians in the West were allowed to live in relative peace. That is changing. We don't face an army surrounding our city, but you face many of the same realities. Live a life for God, you will run into conflict with the world. You don't have to go looking for it. In fact, you can seek to live at peace with everyone. As far as it is in your power, conflict will find you. In your workplace, in your friendships, in your family, or your neighborhoods, or your schools, godliness provokes the world. So how will you respond when that inevitable collision comes? You and I are tempted to compromise or to capitulate like Hezekiah did. We're tempted to respond in our own wisdom or strength and to forget to seek the wisdom and strength of God. Notice what Hezekiah does not do. He does not seek the Lord in his trouble. And this stands in stark contrast to many, many, many examples in Scripture, from Ezra to Nehemiah to many of the judges and kings who respond so differently. Think of King Jehoshaphat in uh, 2, Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 20. He finds himself in a similar situation. He calls for a day of fasting, and he sets his face to seek God. How often fear and conflict can cause God's people to forget God and to seek to save themselves. Conflict is inevitable. When it comes, will you set your face to seek the Lord or will you seek to resolve matters on your own? I'm going to recommend the former. Brings us to our second point. Conflict is inevitable. Compromise is impossible. Seeking to resolve matters in your own power and wisdom is not really an option. There is no faithful path forward that involves compromise. Hezekiah learned that. He tried to resolve the situation. He tried to find a, a happy medium. But neither the enemies of God nor God himself will settle for anything less than full devotion. 
The enemies of God will not settle for anything less than the subjugation and destruction of the people of God, and God will not settle for anything less than the total submission and devotion to him. And the enemies of God, they will use the same strategies the king of Assyria used with Hezekiah and the nation of Judah. They will tell you that resistance is futile, their triumph is inevitable, that you can't trust in God and you have nowhere else to turn but to them. Give in and join them. The world will seek to demoralize, divide, and sow doubt in God's people. To scare with threats and to entice with promises which they are not capable of, nor do they intend to keep. The seed of the serpent will say the right things and come to the wrong conclusions, but they will sound so true at times. The world will seek to confuse the truth with partial truths and outright lies. It will even at times claim they are actually doing on God's behalf what he has called them to do. The enemies of God will do anything and everything to get the people of God to place their trust in anything other than the one true and living God. You've heard this. You've felt this. You're on the wrong side of history. You're vastly outnumbered. You're isolated and alone. Only hateful people would believe what you believe. God is a loving God, which is true, who would never reject someone because of something so little as sin. is false. Give in, even just a little, and you can stop fighting. We'll leave you alone, and life will be so much more comfortable and easier. Look at all the people who get it and have come to our side. Stop making things so difficult for yourself and follow their lead. The world will seek to entice you. It does. The world will seek to threaten you. They will ask the right question and they will come to the wrong answer. Sennacherib asked a great question. On what do you rest your trust? It's a question all of us, I want to consider tonight. On what do we rest our trust? But he misjudged the conclusion the answer to that question, because he misjudged the God of Judah, brings us to our third principle. Conflict is inevitable. Compromise is impossible. Christ is infinite. You can substitute God in there if you want. I know Christ doesn't appear in this text, but the C's helped me to remember it. So, The mistaken logic of the Assyrians was that the God of Judah was like the gods of the other nations. He's not. He is no generic, finite, regional deity. He is no God formed by the hands or minds of men. He is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable God of the universe. Assyria, perhaps, can be given a pass on knowing this. They might be excused for thinking that he was just like every other god of every other nation that they had overrun. But the Israelites knew better. They had the record of the scriptures. They knew that this was the God who created the heavens and the earth. They knew this was the God who had judged the world with the flood and delivered Noah and his family through an ark. They had the history of God's superiority over the so-called gods of Egypt in the time of Moses, of God's deliverance in dividing the waters of the Red Sea, of feeding them for 40 years where their shoes didn't wear out in the wilderness wanderings, 
defeating the nations in the promised land and of delivering from enemies over and over and over again in the history of the judges and now the kings. This God is not like other gods. This is a God on whom you can rest your trust, even when things look bleak. And if the Israelites had every reason to trust in God, how much more have we? On top of everything that they knew, which set him apart, and above all the gods of all the other nations, we know more. We know this God is the one who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, has come into the world, lived a spotless life, died a sacrificial death, and has been raised victoriously to new life. No other God has done that. No other God can deliver from sin and death. But what I want us to, to realize, and, and I think what the Assyrians missed, is that just because no other God can do that doesn't mean that there is no God who can. The one true and living God, he is able and he is worthy. He alone is worthy to be praised, and he alone is capable of upholding your trust. Defeat looked certain in our passage. Frankly, as we come back next week for the rest of the story, as we leave this passage tonight, defeat still looks certain. But in reality, what is absolutely certain beyond the shadow of any doubt is that God and his purposes will prevail, and that nothing can stand in his way. I just want to leave you for a minute with a, with a question. In whom do you now trust? Conflict is inevitable. This doesn't mean that God has abandoned you or failed in his promises. God is God no matter what your circumstances may be. He sits on the throne. Don't lose heart. But also don't compromise. Don't listen to the world. Listen instead to God. Seek him. You must choose a side in this conflict. God or his enemies. Rest your trust in the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one who is able to deliver not only from armies, but deliver, as we heard this morning, into an eternal salvation. No matter what comes our way, whoever places their trust in him will never be put to shame. You pray with me. Father, as we consider your people thousands of years ago who looked to you in conflict with the world, would you encourage our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see what is true and right? Would you give us hearts that turn to you? Would you help us to place our trust firmly on you and to find that you are capable of upholding us? these things in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen.